We will say goodbye to Peter today, but I hope that uh, Peter will stay with us in the days to come with the things that we've seen and thought about together uh, would have been of some help to us. And as we say goodbye to Peter, let me encourage you to look at his second letter, the first chapter, and we'll read verses 12 through 19. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter. Thank you for him being so present in these words. But thank you that you are the greater presence in these words. And so, because these are your words, we ask you that you would give your spirit to us so that word and spirit together would do their work in our souls, in our hearts. Lord, minister to us this day for the sake of your name. We ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. So here is something to think about, something to consider. Imagine that Jesus comes to you, and you know that it's Jesus. Jesus comes to you, and you know that it's Jesus. And Jesus says to you, Your time is short. Your time is short. You ask, well, how long do I have? And he says, your time is short. But but how, how long? And he says, soon. And you say, well, how soon? And he says, soon, but, but, but how soon? And he says, soon, soon, your time is short, soon. That's what Peter says here about himself, and that's exactly what happened to Peter. Somehow, we don't know the details, but the text makes clear that Jesus 
made clear to Peter that Peter's time at the time of the writing of this letter was short. And he uses the word soon. He says in that context, I think it right for me to stir you up by way of reminder. Stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. Our Lord Jesus Christ has made this clear to me. Now, we've walked with Peter over several months. Uh, We've seen, I think, uh, we've seen Peter change. We've seen Peter become a different person. The thing that I've suggested to you over these months is that what is at the center to change, if you set the center of change, if you want to think of it as a key, if you want to think of it as a guiding principle, if you want to think of it as a foundational idea, however you choose to think about it, what I've been suggesting to you is that Peter has changed because in Peter's field of vision, he has gotten smaller and Jesus has gotten bigger. Peter has gotten smaller and Jesus has gotten bigger. And Peter's writing this letter some three decades plus after his last face-to-face meeting with Jesus. Over 30 years. It's been over 30 years. This letter is written in probably 64 or 65 A.D. Jesus was resurrected, crucified, dead, buried, then raised and ascended somewhere in the vicinity of 30 to 33 A.D. So it's been over three decades, 30 plus years. And Peter is a different person, and he's a different person because he's gotten smaller, and Jesus has gotten bigger. So I want you to stop and think about Peter, and even listen to Peter. Listen closely to Peter. Listen for Peter. Listen for his voice. Because these are Peter's words. They are Jesus' words as well. That's what we believe about every letter, every word, every sentence in these 66 books. That behind the human authors, there is the divine author. There is Jesus, who is the one at the end of the day, ultimately responsible for this word being given, for its preservation And then today, in this moment, at this hour, for us receiving benefit from it, it's all because of Jesus. But these words are human words as well. These are Peter's words. And so what are we hearing? What are we hearing as we listen to Peter? Well, let's be clear about this. Let's be clear first about where Peter is. And I don't mean geographically. I don't mean the town that he's writing from or the village that he's in or the city where he finds himself or even possibly the prison or the jail in which he finds himself, which is a very real possibility as the literal physical place where Peter might be. Jesus' last words to Peter were that Peter, while when young, 
dressed himself the way he wanted to be dressed, and went wherever he wanted to go. But at the end of his life, he would be dressed in a way he didn't want to be dressed, and he would be taken to a place he didn't want to go. And then Jesus makes reference to his arms being spread out, a clear allusion to a cross. That, of course, is what provokes Peter to look over his shoulder, seeing John behind him, and ask the question, what about him? There's a great, great little scene in C.S. Lewis's little book, The Horse and His Boy, in which Shasta is asking about his good friend Erebus, who has been wounded, and asks why the lion wounded her. And, and the hermit of the Southern March answers the question. Aslan actually answers the question and says, I tell each person his own story. I don't talk to you about the story of another. I tell you about your story. And Jesus, in effect, says that to Peter. What happens to John is none of your business. Your story is your story. And it's quite likely, quite probable, in fact, that Peter at the time of the writing of this letter, though there's no reference to it in the letter, no certainty about it, it certainly seems if we connect the dots that he could be incarcerated someplace awaiting. Awaiting what? What's the thing that's on Peter's mind? What's the thing that that he's preoccupied with? Well, he's preoccupied with his own death, isn't he? He's preoccupied with his own life's end. That's where he is in his life. He is near his life's end. But how near? How near? He doesn't know. All he knows is soon. All he knows is soon. He knows that the time is near. Verse 14, when he will, he says, put off his body. He'll put off his body. So what's he talking about? Well, he's clearly talking about what I refer to, like to refer to, as the great divorce. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's referring to. That's what he's thinking about. That's what preoccupies him. The great divorce. What is a divorce? You know what a divorce is. A divorce is a rending, a tearing, a separating of things that are meant to be together. It's a tearing of things that are supposed to be united. Divorce is a word that has hugely significant impact and implications for many of us in this room. 49 years ago this summer, I sat in the family room of our little three-bedroom house in Niles, Michigan, My mother was ironing. I was 14. My sister was not quite 12. My mother told us our father was not coming home anymore. Rending, 
pairing of things that are supposed to be together. Divorce. Why do I use that illustration? Do I use that illustration to be manipulative? Do I use that illustration just to sort of penetrate in some melodramatic way your emotions, your feelings? I use that illustration simply to try to connect the reality of what it is that Peter is talking about with his own emotional state and his own theological understanding. He is talking about a divorce. He is talking about the rending and tearing of things. And he uses an image which is both graphic and thoroughly biblical as he uses this language. It's both graphic and thoroughly biblical. He's describing what happens at death. You are body. You are physical. You are material. You are spatial. You are sensual. In the the right and best connotation of that word, you have five senses. You are a sensual being. You see, you smell, you taste, you touch, you hear. You are physical. And you do physical things because you are physical. And you cannot do physical things if you do not have a body. You cannot see without eyes. You cannot talk without a tongue and gums and lungs. You cannot hear without those little bones deep in your inner ear. Remember from ninth grade biology, the hammer, anvil, and stirrup beneath the tympanic membrane, the ear drum. Did you know that you had timpani in your head? Kettle drums in your head? You cannot hear if you do not have these physical things. You can't see or smell or touch or taste. You are body. You are physical. That's the way you were created. And you are spiritual. You not only see and hear and feel and smell and taste, you think. Except between the ages of about 13 and... Trying to come up with a point at which we begin to think. (laughs) You think. You aren't simply connected to the physical world by your own physicality, your own materiality, but you think about the world in which you find yourself. You try to make sense of it. You try to interpret it. You try to explain it. You try to categorize it. You try to find meaning in it. That's what Adam did, created as a physical being, created with a connection to the physical world. He wandered around the world in which God had placed him, the world which God made, and he started giving names to things, interpreting, seeking to understand, making meaning, 
or seeking, the better way to put it is seeking to understand the meaning that is present in every aspect, every element, every dimension of reality, filled with meaning because it has been filled with meaning by a God of meaning. You aren't just physical, you are soulish. You are capable. I had to dig this one out of the memory banks from 35 or 40 years ago. You are capable of what Baruch Spinoza calls thought and extension. You're able to engage, think, reflect upon, and project from your mind. You not only think about the world as it is, but you have the ability to think about what the world might be like. And it's that, among a number of other things, that differentiates you from everything else in the creation. You can dream, and you can plan, and you can hope, and you can love. And you do these things not instinctually, but reflectively, having considered and contemplated and having made choices. You are a human being. You are not a rock, nor a rock badger, but you are a human being. And death is the bifurcating, the rending, the tearing, the divorcing, the ripping apart of things meant to be together, body and soul. That's what Peter is contemplating as he writes these reminders. As he says to these folks, I'm, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. I want to remind you of things and I want to try to do it in such a way that you never forget them. So long after I'm dead and gone, you'll still have the ability to remember them and think about them. He's thinking about his own death and he's leaving a last will and testament for these people to whom he's writing. And there's another thing There's another thing in this text that seems to me to be woven deeply into the fabric of the soul of Peter as he writes these things. Verse 14 says he knows, Peter says he knows that the putting off of his body will be soon. The putting off of his body. Verse 13, he says, as long as I am in this body, I want to stir you up by by way of reminder. There is a word in the original language, in the Greek language. It's used over 140 times in the New Testament. And it is translated body. It can be used of human beings. The human body. Paul uses it at the end of Romans 7 when he asks, who will deliver me from this body of death? Throughout that chapter, he's alluded to the fact that there's something woven deeply into the fabric of his body, literally his physical body, that is a constant irritation and problem to him. And that is the residual effects of sin in his body. 
It's not just a spiritual thing. It's a physical and material thing. It's a word that can be translated or used with respect to human beings, but it can also be used with respect to animals. It can be used with respect to heavenly bodies. Paul uses that word in 1 Corinthians 15 as he talks about the resurrection. He makes reference to the fact that there are different kinds of bodies and a different sort of glory attached to each kind of body. It's interesting. Chico's has picked up this word and uses this word. Chico's, you know, the women's fashion store, you know. They've picked up this word and they've given it to their stores which sell ladies' lingerie and undergarments. Soma. Soma is the word for body that appears repeatedly throughout the New Testament. But that's not the word that's used here. My guess is if you look at your text, the text, whether you have the ESV or the NIV, you will see a little footnote by that word body. And if you look to the side or in the middle or down at the bottom, you will see that the word being translated is not the word soma, it is the word skinoma, which is translated tabernacle. Tabernacle. I will soon be putting off my tabernacle. And what was the tabernacle, folks? What was the tabernacle? a tent, right? Yeah, it was a tent. But it was no ordinary tent, was it? It was a most distinctive and unique tent. Folks, there is an entire theology of physicality and spirituality and of God in his relationship both to physicality and spirituality in this little word. And in this short sentence, what was the purpose of the tent, the tabernacle, this most distinctive and unique tent and tabernacle? It was the place for the glory of God to dwell. It was the place for this magnificent, explosive, beauty and wonder to take up residence in the midst of Israel. See, as Peter thinks about the rending, the tearing of body and soul, it's one thing to contemplate death. It's one thing to contemplate this great divorce. It is yet another to see this thing which is designed to house to be a habitation for 
the very glory and beauty of the eternal God to suffer dissolution and rending. It is one thing to die. It is another thing no longer to be the habitation of God. You ask, you ask, what is really important? What really causes me to be staggered and amazed and to wonder? What is it that brings me real sadness and a real sense of loss? What is the prospect that terrifies me? For Peter, there is certainly sadness in the contemplation of his own death, the contemplation of the rending of body and soul. But I want to suggest to you the greater thing for Peter, the greater wonder is that God should create body and soul for this highest and most spectacular purpose of clothing and investing body and soul, with his own beauty and glory. Folks, that is who you are made to be. That is what you are made to do. And what is so unspeakably tragic about death the great divorce is that this design, because of sin and rebellion, this design becomes frustrated. You were meant to be the habitation of the incomprehensible beauty and brilliance and wonder and glory of the infinite personal God who is really there. You were to be robed in it, clothed in it. Find that it is woven into you and through you, engulfed by it, to be at one and the same time the opera house in which the glory explodes onto the stage in drama and power, and you were at the same time to be the audience witnessing that explosion of glory and spectacular beauty. Body and soul. And you know what? More than anything else in the whole world, though you may not know it and you may not believe it, That is what you want. That is what you want. That is what you long for. That is what every other longing is explained by. The longing both to be clothed by and to be witness to the spectacular beauty and loveliness and glory of God. 
Do you know that scene? Do you know that scene? I know you do. In Shawshank Redemption. That scene when Andy Dufresne locks the office door and turns on the PA system throughout the whole prison. And he plays over that loudspeaker system, the duet from Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. And everyone in the prison is stopped in his tracks and riveted and read Andy's friend says, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are better left unsaid. I'd like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words, and it makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It was as if some beautiful bird had flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away and for the briefest of moments every last man in Shawshank felt free that's it isn't it to be ravished by something so spectacularly beautiful to be witness to something so spectacularly beautiful, some vision of beauty, the effect of which is to set you free. That is what you are designed to be enfolded in, gathered up into becoming both a partaker of it and a witness to it. This is what makes our culture so tragic. The culture of beauty. The culture of glory. The culture of human achievement. Angelina Jolie is beautiful. Ravishingly so. And Angelina Jolie's ravishing beauty is consuming her. I heard a tragic, tragic thing yesterday. I was on my way home from the gym, trying to keep the inevitable at arm's length. 
while at the gym, I listened to my iPod. I listened to Kansas. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. And on my way home, I heard this tragic, tragic thing. Listening to the radio, the announcer who introduced the next song said this, stark, stark, arresting sentence. The girlfriend of Mick Jagger was found dead in her apartment of an apparent suicide. And then she said, here's our next song. I can't get no satisfaction. I almost had to pull my car to the side of the road to call this woman DJ to ask her if she realizes what she just juxtaposed. This would probably take a good while to explain. But do you know what killed Diana? Do you know what killed Princess Diana? Not a tragic car accident with her lover, Dodi Fayad, but the crushing weight of royalty and her desperate attempt to escape it. The crushing weight of human glory. My friends, there is a glory that does not crush. There is a glory that does not turn to dust in the wind there is a glory that brings lasting satisfaction. And it is the glory that humanizes and enhances and beautifies and restores and enlarges you. Make no mistake, it makes you smaller. But in making you ever so much smaller, it makes you ever so much larger. Peter is contemplating, I know, with deeply mixed feelings and emotions the putting off of the body that was meant to be clothed in that glory. And yet, look at how he thinks about it. Look at how he thinks about it. He actually, I am convinced, 
thinks about this idea of the putting off of this body which is meant to be clothed in that glory. He actually talks about this not with regret, though with sadness, I am sure. He talks about this stunning and remarkable and wonderful thing with a deep sense of anticipation. How do I know that? Just notice in the text that nowhere, nowhere does he use the word death. He talks about the putting off of his body, the tearing apart of body and soul. But he also uses this striking word in verse 15, departure. And I will make every effort to do so, so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. See, I'm encouraging you to listen to Peter's heart, to listen to Peter's maturity and his growth and to listen to the way he frames things, the way he says things because over those three and a half decades he has come to understand some things that at the time of the death and resurrection and even the ascension of Jesus he did not understand but at this point in his life he understands them. He knows what he was meant to be and he knows what he is headed for. And he uses the word departure. And you do know what that word means literally, don't you? It is the Greek word exhodos. Exhodos. It is the word that is given to the second book of the Bible in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible. What was the exhodos? What was the exodus? It was the road out from where to what? From bondage and brokenness and sadness through wilderness wandering to what? Into the promised land, into a land flowing with milk and honey, into a place where in a typical manner things are brought to restoration. It is the place where the glory of God dwells. You can read all of this yourself. In Exodus 30 through 36, right at the center of that unfolding story, God says to Moses, I'm not going up with you. I'll send my angel before you. And this is a rough paraphrase of Moses' response to what he hears from God He basically says, God, if you're not leaving, I'm not leaving. Because to be with you, because to be without you in the promised land is to be without that thing for which my soul most deeply longs. The promised land is no promised land if you are not there. Why does Peter use that word? He uses that word exodus 
because over the course of these three and a half decades, he knows that this terrible rending, this terrible divorcing of body and soul really is a passageway, a road out, a road which Jesus has carved for him and which he then walks in following Jesus because it is Jesus who created the first road out by his death and his resurrection and his ascension into the presence of the glory of his Father. And it is that road that Peter anticipates walking from where to where from brokenness and struggle and trial and disappointment through death to the presence of the glory of God with Jesus. That is what Peter anticipates happening soon. Soon. Soon, Peter says. What an interesting word. Soon. He didn't know when. But he says soon. Soon is an interesting word, folks, in the scriptures. It is a word that is used in the last verses of the 22nd chapter of the Revelation. Three times. Verses 7, 12, and 20. Jesus says, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? 2,000 years. 2,000 years seems like a long time ago. And a little can look like a lot until the lot is contrasted with a lot. A long time can look like a long time until that long time is contrasted with a really, really really long time. And then the little, which appeared to be a lot, becomes a soon. How about it? How about it? Are you ready for glory? It is coming soon. Are you ready for glory? It is coming soon. Are you ready for glory? It is coming soon. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, What a spectacular hope.
to be so ravished by a spectacular beauty, a spectacular glory, not only to be ravished by it, but to be drawn up into it, to taste it and not be crushed by it, but actually to be humanized and transformed by it so that we become more alive than we have ever been before. Oh God, with Irenaeus we say, what is the glory of God? It is a man fully alive. And how we long for it. And pray for your faithfulness to us that we might be faithful to you until that glory is our clothing and fully fills our field of vision. Hear our prayer. We make it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.